it's even a sociological inaccessibility in terms of like the demonization and the dehumanization, both in how the institution works and the cultural framework and rhetoric around people who are incarcerated. And so showing up what you supposedly offer, I'm putting in quotes here, that sense of ministering is a validation of their humanity and the worthiness of them being visited, of them being seen. Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily a claim that you have something to give, but more that you have an awareness of the kind of violence that's taking place and in your solidarity by your presence, by your time, Mm -hmm. you are testifying against that in a way that honors and sees their humanity. Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Byron. And I'm Char. We're glad you're with us. Dee-dee-doo. Um, so, a uh, small reflection of what this whole podcasting thing uh, is and was. Oftentimes we pick a topic that is um, something that we are wrestling through or reflecting on, mm-hmm. either from our own lives, potentially from classes. I wanted to take it in a direction of kind of just doing a little bit of external processing mm-hmm. and also uh, like audio record uh, to just have something to keep uh, as a memory for me to reflect back on. But I promise you it won't be boring because the experience that we'll be reflecting on today is my summer chaplaincy program. Mm. Um, And I was working with incarcerated youth, um, teenagers in prison, uh, which is pretty intense. And I also think it's something that's relatively inaccessible to most people. Um, and, and it's designed to be inaccessible, right? That's part of the whole injustice of the quote-unquote criminal justice system. You know, out of sight, out of mind. It's mm. it's a whole philosophy, if not theology, of, of scapegoating and blame and othering based in, in racism and all sorts of things to keep the quote-unquote bad people away. Mm. And so it's it's not surprising that this is an area that most people don't have very much experience in. It, uh, experience in. Sure. Um, so anyway, I'll be uh, processing mostly like just things that happened. I would love, Char, if you could like reflect, ask questions. One of the things, the, the big things I learned this summer was so much work happens pastorally, like caring for people in just like listening and just reflecting and then reflecting with meaning. So like, wow, what I'm hearing is this. Um, it sounds like that meant this to you. Um, you know, so so I'll be talking pretty broadly, maybe mm-hmm. hopefully not too boringly in terms of sequence of events and things like that. But yeah. feel free to. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm hearing is that you want me to reflect back <gasps> what, you, what I'm hearing. That's exactly it. And it sounds like that's pretty important to you. Phenomenal. It is pretty important, <laughs> um, but also because it's a deviation from what kind of we usually do, which is more conversational. So mm-hmm. thank you for your grace and indulgence. Absolutely. So oof, prison ministry in general has been a thing that I've wanted to do for a really long time. Before I even knew I wanted to go to seminary, mm. um, I had been reading through, it's Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats and whatever. And Jesus says, uh, when I was hungry, you gave me food. 
when I was thirsty, you gave me water. Mm-hmm. When I was sick and in prison, you came and visited me. Mm. Um, and the reaction to both groups, the sheep and the goats, is the exact same, actually. It is, what? When uh, when were you, like, sick and in prison and all of that stuff? And what well, Jesus says to another group, I was going through all these things and you didn't visit mm. me. So the reaction is the same. Well, um, I think I think the reaction is more of or ah, but sure, yeah. <laughs> oh, those biblical literalists. Yeah, <laughs> what an unfortunate conversation that would have been between Jesus and the sheep and the goats if the Bible was literal. <laughs> Sorry, a little bit of a dump. <laughs> Go it's actually, good. it's good um, to have humor. Yeah, yes, go ahead. Uh, as I just as you're introducing this theme before you get into the richness of your experience. Not to sidetrack, but I think it is an important founding place to even ask the question, when you talk about ministry, what is it that you're referring to? Because I think, in my mind, I have various associations for ministry, and as you've entered into this context, I can imagine people listening themselves can have all sorts of different interpretations of what you mean by ministry, and therefore either um, hopes or even um, Hmm. concerns, you know, in that aspect of like the colonial... Or, or, or condescending, supercilious Savior. kind of way. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you think ministry, and particularly in this context, prison ministry, like how are you approaching that? Yeah. Um, to hop actually directly back to the scripture at hand, mm-hmm. in this case, ministry is, I think, meeting the needs of. Okay. okay. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that's always what ministry is, right? I think pastoring, the idea of being a shepherd, is different from necessarily meeting the needs of. Uh, you could also have a teaching kind of ministry that, again, if this is not existential needs, you know, whatever. And it could, you're, you're super right to point out, that ministry could turn into this just, like, secular sense of resource, uh, providing resources or something, mm-hmm. which is, of course, good. You know, Jesus ministers by feeding people, by healing mm-hmm. people, by giving, things, giving them things that they need. Um. But I think the difference between like a, a nonprofit organization and a minister is that it is rooted in a, at very least, holistic spiritual sense of who people are and what they need. Yeah. Um, but then on top of that, maybe even more specifically, a, a foundation in Jesus as the source of why any of this matters. Mm. Um, and again, by Jesus, I'm preaching on this uh, on Friday. By Jesus, I don't mean, you know, some sort of esoteric, off-in-the-clouds uh, spiritual sense of things. I mean a fully human and fully God Jesus. By Jesus, you mean by Jesus? By Jesus, I mean by Jesus. By, by Jesus. <laughs> bye, <I> bye. <laughs> a homoousia. <laughs> fully God, fully... Okay, anyway. Um, but yes. Yeah, so just, just quickly then, in this context, the need, as Jesus asserts it, is visiting. Right. The, yes. the notion that as you were talking about the inaccessibility, it's a geographic inaccessibility. It's mm-hmm. a structural inaccessibility. It's even a sociological inaccessibility in terms of like the demonization and the dehumanization, both in how the institution works and the cultural framework and rhetoric around people who are incarcerated. Yeah. And yeah. so showing up what you supposedly offer, I'm putting in quotes here, that sense of ministering is a validation of their humanity yes. and the worthiness of them being visited, of them being seen, mm-hmm. 
it's not even necessarily a claim that you have something to give, but more that you have an awareness of the kind of violence that's taking place. And in your solidarity, by your presence, by your time, Mm -hmm. you are testifying against that in a way that honors and sees their humanity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It and actually, I mean, maybe this is jumping way ahead, but my biggest takeaway was a refinement of my own call. One of my biggest takeaways mm. was a refinement of my own spiritual call. That's um, awesome. A, in class, Dr. Barnes talks about like what is what is your call? Like, and it should be something that it's it's the type of thing that keeps you going and makes your life worth living. And it all points to and comes from Christ and all that. But like, there's a reason why you are doing it and it's different that when you do it is different from the way everyone else does it Mm. um and like the entire thing that drives everything that i do is identifying people's belovedness Mm. in christ i'm I'm, I'm snapping here (laughs) we we got a little button so we can can do that (laughs) um and i mean going into this kind of prison ministry stuff there were two people like my father and uh my spiritual mentor um kathy both had some pretty severe uh, hesitations, cautions mm. about me being able to do this work. Specifically you. Specifically me being able to do this difficult work of prison chaplaincy mm. or prison ministry. Um, they were afraid that I was too going to be too soft, too nice, too gentle, whatever, um, that I wouldn't be able to put up with the, the level of like harsh, difficult reality. Because um, huh. it's there, right? Yeah. It's an incredibly difficult and harsh uh, situation. And, and I don't know if that lack of confidence came from, like, these are people who know me very well. I don't know if that lack of confidence came from a, a distrust in me and my ability to, like, meet something, or if it was a distrust or misunderstanding of who, like, incarcerated folks are yeah. and whether or not they are too scary or or harsh or... Mm wounded or something to help and that that's a question that i need to like figure out not against them specifically like again i think they were at the end of the summer both surprised by my capacity to have done this and done this very well Mm -hmm. um i say with a large amount of confidence and my specific supervisor uh affirmed that and affirmed also the growth of like things that i wasn't doing so well at the beginning Mm. well you know it's interesting to me that they say that as these people who know you really well because to me two strengths that really shine in you. One is patience Mm. and uh, the ability to be present through tumultuous surroundings. But then the second thing that I would say is your own sense of security and stability. Mm. And so the idea that you'd be seen as too sensitive is just an interesting, like I'm curious where they even got that idea, what, what inspired that sense yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have been hurt a lot by some pretty significant rejection. And at the same time, sorry, yeah. you have stood in those spaces of trial, like right. with, you know, the. are we naming the church? <laughs> you know, at UPC, that despite the continual disregard for your full humanity and the ways that your sexuality was being uh, demonized or walked around in awkward ways or, you know, that otherwise you were not being given the space to be your full self despite all that you invested there, you continued to invest there. You continued to have pa- conversations with the pastor. You continued to be involved in ministries, including ministries where people probably didn't want you to be. 
you you <laughs> you stayed. So so to me, the idea that yeah, sure, you've been hurt, but your experiences of being hurt, if anything, validate that you have that stability. Right. It, it's a little bit of my yeah. My reaction has basically only always been to lean forward on Christ and and community. Mm-hmm. Like I would never have been able to do any of that stuff without in many cases, my parents and Kathy and the whole community at UPC. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a thing of, like, I, I don't, I'm not a person who complains a lot. Mm-hmm. I do lament, mm. um, but I don't stay there either. So, yeah, there's, there's this sense of, like, lamenting and going through trials is only a problem if you don't know how to hand them back to God at the end of the day. It's a similar thing I've come to of, like, I, articulating who your enemies are and fighting your enemies is only a problem if you don't know how to love them. Mm. Yeah. So who, who is, who or what is the opposition? Right. You know, is the opposition truly the person who is causing the harm or is the opposition their state or being in the, in the surrounding structural context that would make them be such? Right. We do not, our, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there what Jesus says, love your enemies. You know, there's this exactly penetrating truth that goes deep to the sense of go get beyond yeah. the initial hurt. How holistic is your love? Yeah. Does it end at uh, at yourself, mm. <laughs> or does it end at this other person? Does it end at the situation they came from? Mm-hmm. Does it end at the systems of injustice where they came from? Does it end at the spiritual levels of like animosity and evil mm. that? drive those like where does your love end mm. where can you no longer find grace mm. um, and that's another thing that I was challenged by specifically of like because a lot of people when they say oh you know our enemy is not flesh and blood they say like oh it's the devil yeah and I, <laughs> I learned some things this summer you know next char you can you'll go next week you'll pick the topic and then the week after that our topic is going to be Satan Lucifer and the devil and Satanism <laughs> it's going to be interesting I hope I just want to do a little bit more research anyway so back to prison stuff I have not always I've, I've kind of tried to get into various prison ministry things before um, and just had a really hard time finding like accessing them um, their security clearances and, and all sorts of things hurdles but another one a big one that I found so I needed to do, so why did I do this at all um, now was in seminary you need to do, most people need to do a CPE, an accredited chaplaincy program something, experience. Um, and almost always, like the vast majority of those are in hospitals, hospital mm-hmm. chaplaincy. Um, Try that's what you did, that's what a whole bunch of people did. I specifically, this isn't comparing the two at all, uh, but my mom's a midwife uh, in terms of death, you know, I've dated someone who's gone on to be a death doula. Um, uh, I've I quit my job when my grandmother died to go be like one of her primary care provider people yeah. um, at home. So like I'm relatively comfortable with death, and I I would love to hear more of your experience because sure. I know that chaplaincy wasn't just death; it's also the trauma of like living with uh, ongoing diagnoses mm-hmm. and and all sorts of things. Um, and it's different to, you know, walk into someone's life in a moment of, like, situational trauma. Um, anyway, so so not to compare them at all, but I really felt uh, drawn towards prison chaplaincy. But I was really picky about who I was going to do it with. Um, there weren't any accredited programs, so unfortunately it didn't count as a uh, field ed credit for Princeton. But 
um, my presbytery was very generous or my specific liaison uh, was very generous in allowing me to go outside the box. Yeah. Um, and as long as I was doing chaplaincy work, uh, she was going to sign off on it. And she has. And I am so, so, so happy about that. That's awesome. Because um, it is something I do not use the term life changing all that often anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I have about three different things this summer, but this was a pretty big summer. Um, and I don't mean that as a closed mindset thing, but like I've done a lot in my life. <laughs> it's hard for me to reach that like activation threshold of something that can shift my entire being. Because you've been open-minded and exposed to a lot. The whole time. Yeah. 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 So, so I had to do a lot of that legwork. And I don't know if it's one of those things of like, if something's worth doing, it's worth like fighting for or whatever Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to end that sentence um i tried literally seven different times to try to get this program to work i went through three or four different prison ministry options Mm. and and people to connect with and timing just was terrible it was just really hard to get this whole thing organized logistically and you were also doing it on your own you didn't have a team Right. So real briefly in mm-hmm. my program and in, you know, any official accredited program, the structure's all there for you. Mm. Doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, know people when you get there, blah, blah, blah. But like, you don't have to set it up. Mm-hmm. You had to set it up. So not only is it exhausting and you're going against the grain, you're also doing it alone. Yeah. So yeah. that feels really isolating. It was, it was pretty difficult. But when I, when I say I was picky, I'm a prison abolitionist. Like you can go back a couple episodes and listen to our like podcast on Mm -hmm. prison abolition and the sensitivities there and and all of that. If someone goes into a prison as a chaplain, as a Christian minister or whatever, and they are tacitly supporting the system, Mm. that to me is a problem. Um, It's hard to go in (laughs) and not become part of the system. Sure. Like, by being allowed in, you are automatically part of the system. And, so, yeah. so there's a huge tension there. But, but I knew there's people who I've seen go into prison chaplaincy even while I was there um, at Echo Glen, which is where I was. More on that later. Um, who came in with this message of like repentance and and uh, punishment and condemnation? Yeah, and it's just like kind of you know if you're not in prison, it's it's relatively typical like conservative Christian-y language. Mm-hmm. I don't like it then. I hate it in prison. Yeah. There is no one who understands the consequences of of harm and and their own actions and and the idea of repentance and all of that better than the people who are sitting who, who have had their lives taken away from them because of their actions and, and the actions of others and, and systems behind that. They get sin. They get punishment. They get all of that stuff. And yet it's still a false consequence. Sure. Like to me, natural well, it's, consequences it's, are like... I wouldn't say false. It is a... Artificial? Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's an artificial It's like getting a ticket when you run a red light rather than like crashing getting, into someone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Natural that consequence versus... Yeah. Yeah, and and so the idea of justice that would then mm. be motivating that sense of punishment as causal is like all yeah you know it, it's coming from a very um artificial and mm. i would say problematic place so yeah. you know the notion of like and this is an experience that i've had that a lot of um lifers that i have gotten to know 
Um, right, you worked in prisons before I did. Um, you had a class. Yeah, that they very frequently say, I deserved punishment for what I did, but not this much. Yeah. You know, or like, I'm at this point now where I can reflect on, you know, and, and that's such an interesting thing for me to wrestle with as someone who's privileged to have never personally been incarcerated mm-hmm. or never had some, you know, immediate family member be incarcerated yeah. where, uh, you know, I can reflect from this happy-go-lucky place of like, oh, no, you you, nev- you didn't deserve any of that punishment. But then there's the grittiness of their lived experience that deserves to be listened to and, and validated for uh, the richness of, you know, coming from a place of lived experience, right? So yeah. the sense of what punishment do we deserve? How, mm. how do we wrestle with that concept when, you know, you and I yeah. believe that the system itself shouldn't exist at all? Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to deconstruct the, the entire, you know, word concept of earning or deserving mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, simultaneously in Christian theology, we somehow you know, even though we didn't choose to be born or whatever, there's a complex, you know, moral system Mm -hmm. of like, we all, sure, we deserve love and respect and and all of that just by virtue of being alive. And also by a lot of like pretty central aspects of theology, we deserve like God's condemnation. Mm -hmm. You know, even Bart talks about the totality of God's no to humanity. Now, conveniently for Bart, it turns around to be this like Aufhenbung, um, <laughs> got to hear that word again, um, like rejection of the rejection, mm-hmm. you know, God slays for life, which mm. is a weird concept, but okay. Um, you need that on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. Quick, quick little thing on that if I can. I know we're, yeah, deviating just real fast though. I, I think separating the concept of deserving or des- yeah, deserving and worth. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I I would say, deserving is about earning, right? And so on a larger meta narrative sense, what do we actually deserve? I don't know if we deserve anything, mm-hmm. but what what are we worth? Well, mm. that has to do with our value, yeah. and the value is not set by us, but set by God. And so I would say we don't deserve anything, but we're worth everything. Mm. That's just a little caveat that I would put there. Yeah, I like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, and you can trace the the history of the theology or philosophies of incarnation and the same development of theologies of hell. And what does moral spiritual punishment look like? Does it look like retributive justice or Mm. does it look like restorative justice? And that is a huge question that I think everyone needs to answer in themselves. You know, sure. What does, what does a government decide is, is moral human ethics, but how does God work? Mm. Right. And, and our conception of God will project itself into everything that we do and has been the source of, you know, this is not a Christian nation and never has been, but people have used their idea of God as a basis for constructing things like governments mm-hmm. and and social systems like prisons and whatever. So that gets really complicated. So I was really picky about who I wanted as a prison chaplain, so much so that when a guy named Chris Hoke in Seattle mm. who worked at Monroe when he quit and said, hey, maybe don't go there. I was like, well, great, okay, I'm not going to find... I needed 400 hours for mm. my uh, for this thing to count. Like, typically a CPE is 400 hours. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I could do some of that at Echo Glen and some of that at Monroe. Um, and then, yeah, Monroe didn't work out, so I spent all of my time at Echo Glen. So anyway, that was just getting all of this stuff set up. Mm. Um, 
It was a little clunky and late to start. I went to Belize. That was all planned. And I was supposed to start June 6th, I think. It didn't start until June 16th, maybe even. Um, but I got all the, like, security passes and stuff through. And started to go visit in. And my uh, supervisor was a wonderful pro- person, uh, Chaplain Terry Stewart. Um, and they were amazing. Um, yeah, had a lot of trust in, in me to be able to like allow me to, to hop in and, and take over some, some things like there was again to, to their credit and to, this is Washington, you know, so, okay. A couple differences. Uh, I was able to kind of take over the Tuesday night, uh, queer group. Awesome. Not queer Christian, but like queer. Um, and that predated you. It did. It did, actually. Again, uh, Terry's awesome. Um, so, a couple things. This wasn't a prison. It was, a, it was initially a reform school hmm. type of thing. In the 60s, there, were, there was a boys' reform school and a girls' reform school, and the, it was costing a lot of money and whatever, and so the government consolidated these into this, like, kind of state-of-the-art uh, at the time uh, incarceration center thing. Um, and I think their capacity could go up to like 200 or something. Uh, it was at about 60% capacity um, when I was there this last summer. Do you know who the initial target demographic was for the reform schools? Um, in the 60s, it was... N- uh, there's a whole like history of mm. that being uh, target demographic. That's an interesting well, way of putting things. There's a history of reform schools being... Uh, targeted, mm-hmm. weaponized, perhaps, against indigenous uh, yeah. kids. Um, I was going to say students, but kids. Um, yeah, I was just cur- curious if there's any history involved with Echo Glen. As far as I could tell, no. This was in Issaquah in the middle of a forest. Uh, here's one of the wildest things. Beautiful, like, setting. And, you know, if people are going through a that much trauma in their lives might as well make it at a beautiful spot. But there was something really incongruous about like, these are people who for the most part had not spent a lot of time in nature. So, you know, to me it was like this beautiful thing to them. It was just this foreign kind of scary. They'd see a deer and like get freaked out. Um, And so again, these sentimentalities and these sentiments of, you know, what, what counts as, as good. Some of it was just really freaking quaint. You know, they called the, they called the, buildings on the campus cottages like oh this isn't a cottage it's a freaking prison like their cells there's the cells that the kids were in were not much bigger than this recording studio which is i don't know 10 feet by five six feet Mm -hmm. um little concrete slab with a plastic mattress on it um they could decorate a little bit on the inside and they had like a shelf for books or whatever the room was a cell. It was a prison cell. Mm-hmm. Um, the outside of the 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 main like living space of the cottages, I would say, were relatively well furnished. They had access to like a kitchen that was kind of always moderately stocked. Their food was actually really good, uh, which was which was very nice. I stayed occasionally. The food that you had was the same food that yeah okay. yeah. Um, I <laughs> later in the year in the summer I uh, I don't think got more relaxed, but got more. Not relaxed in kind of a bad way, but more like integrated and and comfortable in this space. Sure. Um, I wanted to keep those boundaries up and 
only let them down if that became appropriate later on. But the kids started inviting me to stay, you know, 15 minutes after five uh, to eat dinner with them and stuff. Um, so, yeah, there were five, six. There were a couple cottages, um, five for men or boys, uh, males ages 12 to 18. And there were two uh, for females ages uh, 12 to 25. Mm. How do they deal with non-binary people or trans people? That's actually a really good question. Um, as far as I could tell, there was at least one trans girl, uh, and she was in the uh, girl's okay. uh, cottage, cabin. Um, there were a lot of queer kids, but in terms of gen, there were not uh, very many in terms of gender. Mostly sexuality. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so again, that's Washington. Mm-hmm. And that is not going to be the case in most in most places. The fact that they have a a queer center, the fact that they have a library, the fact you know, there was a lot that was like, oh, Washington is just a very progressive state. Um, and I know that in certain cases, leftist progressive stuff can end up looking like surveillance and paying the police more to do all of their terrible stuff, um, and incarceration can increase and, and all of that stuff. But mm-hmm. the the value systems and the, the people who are questioning the ethics that go after that point, at least in Washington, seemed to be better than some alternatives that I've seen, that I've heard of, at least in other parts of the country and stuff. Sure. And that's the difficulty in my mind with the idea of reform versus yeah. abolitionist reform, yeah. that, you know, on a just human level these resources that are being provided are better than not having those resources provided. Mm -hmm. And yet what kind of justification of the system happens as soon as you make what is inherently inhumane appear more humane, you know, that, that you're talking about the food being good, you know, the nature, at least to the outside observer being beautiful, um, their access to resources like the library and the queer group and all and that might pe- make people think, oh, see, look, this is a good thing. Yeah. And in some ways further entrench it, whereas keeping a more binaristic good-bad where the system itself never tries to hide the fact that it's bad might mm-hmm. lead more people to considering its abolition as being important. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So experiences of stuff while I was there. What I did generally on a daily basis, I would go and they would have school from morning until 2.30 or something. Mm. Um, so oftentimes I would go in at 1 o'clock and meet with anyone who, yeah, man, even after months of being there, I still did not know the, all the terminology for the various levels of consequences and punishments and stuff that the kids could incur. Mm. Um, so like if they were on orange, as in wearing orange clothes, that meant that they were at an increased flight risk um, for running away or uh, it was a way of partitioning off the ones who had recently been doing some sort of like uh, unacceptable behavior, whether it was uh, violence or self-harm or um, like gang-affiliated communication or something. Uh, There were lower level consequences. But anyway, so like if they were on certain higher levels of consequences, they weren't allowed to go to school. Um, that mm. was not very often, but usually there were at least three or so kids across the campus who were on enough consequences to 
mean that if I went at one, I would still have a couple people to visit before they all got out of school. Mm-hmm. So I would go visit one-on-one with them. I almost always did one-on-ones. Um, uh, there were a couple times if they if I knew the kids well enough and if I knew they got along well enough together that I could have two on one, two of them with me. Um, that didn't happen very often. So it was mostly I just go in. It was hard to introduce myself. It was hard to get acquainted to, you know, what all the cottages were called and everyone's names and stuff. I think I got it basically by the end. Um, I'm pretty good with with names in that kind of circumstance. Um so yeah, I it was really tough to introduce myself. Um, they are really distrustful of adults often, uh, for really good reasons. Um, and <laughs> I was told that this would happen that they would you know push back, they would test you. Sure. Um, early on, especially, um, and <laughs> that it that the the quality of ministry, quote unquote, that you would get with them, to them, even from them, like, had a lot to do with how much you, like, who who you showed yourself to be in those first, like, couple days of them pushing you really hard. Um, so, like, I, I was first, first experience with these kids. I wore a uh, shirt that, this is Pacific Northwest, I was wearing a shirt that had a uh, indigenous uh, Haida, um, uh, First Nations group eagle, like, Native American eagle art. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple kids like asked me if I was uh, Native American and they, and I was like, no. And a couple of them like got really pissed at me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh gosh, like, did I just mess stuff up? It's like, no, they're just being, I mean, they, they could also, you know, be entirely valid in their, uh, their perspectives and opinions on whether or not white people can wear like indigenous art. But yeah, so like anything that you do, they would find something to like mm-hmm. push you on. Um, you know, I was, I was, this was even weeks into months into the time. And I was walking around whistling and a kid was like, don't do that. And I was like, Oh, sorry if that's annoying to you. And he's like, no, you're not allowed to do that. It's a gang thing. I was like, Oh, mm. you know, but was, was he looking out for me? Was he picking on me? Just trying to find something to like call me out on and reverse a power dynamic for a second. Mm. Like, this is that kind of open-minded, like, what what is happening here? What is the subtext? What is the sub-subtext behind all of these interactions? Um, you know, and what are the moments where I kind of stand my ground with who I am? You know, if, if some kids, like, you know, if I'm, if I'm in conversation and I'm saying stuff about Christianity or about queerness or whatever and people want to, like, attack that, you know, what is my positionality mm-hmm. in regards to that? Do I need to suddenly defend Christianity or defend my own queerness? N- no, generally. <laughs> um, especially not if it comes at the cost of my ability to hear them and validate their experiences and stuff. So, yeah, one, one-on-ones. I tried to introduce myself as, like, a... a religious coordinator as a Christian chaplain early on I was kind of treated a little bit like a counselor mm. people would come in and, and say whatever I tried to be very holistic you know I would say a little bit of who I who I was and what I was doing and I said just so you know like my definition of spiritual care is very holistic you know it it connects with how you're feeling in your body and what your emotions are doing and um, what your social interactions are like in this restricted space. Um, 
you know, do you have access to all of the things you need to to help you practice your your faith and spiritual practices? I was a little, I tried to, I think I pushed that a little bit early on, trying to like establish my own positionality as like, this is what I do. Mm. Um, In a way you found unhelpful? A little bit. Um, again, because then kids felt pressured to say something spiritual or whatever. And eventually I was like, oh no, all of this is, this is, this is very holistic. Like that's, that's the position I kind of came to eventually. And silence is no bad thing in, in one-on-one kind of chaplaincy interaction things. But yeah, there was some difficulty in establishing, you know, my presence versus their presence, not versus, but yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I'm curious, would you do it differently now if you were to start again in a different, you know, carceral facility? Would I start differently? Because eventually, like... Yeah, you kind of found your own. Yeah. And and one of the things about this group is that the average, the average time... Um, the average sentence for these kids was between a month and a half to like 15 months mm-hmm. or so. Um, and so there were a lot of students, kids that left. Mm-hmm. So I really did get to kind of start over <laughs> quite often. That's interesting. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things about, one of the things about prison ministry is you are dealing with someone's entire life. You can literally do nothing to help them, right? At the end of the day, you have to leave and they have to stay. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I had to get in my mind of like, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I even thought that teaching would be like an easy way of me getting into kind of my positionality in relation to, to these kids. And t- like, I'm kind of a natural teacher mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And teaching was not, was also not what these kids wanted or needed or, or what helped mm-hmm. them. So I did have to fumble around a lot, but I really did get to like start over all the time. Yeah. So I, you know, I, would I do it differently? Like, yes, I, I, and I did do it differently because <laughs> sure, I got sure. the opportunity to continue to do it differently and reinvent every single time. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering with that idea of the holistic approach, the openness, the silence, even what you just shared now about, um, you know, not coming in with the thought of having something to offer. Like, you mentioned how this summer was life-changing. Like, how was that part shaped you not even just in terms of engaging this kind of ministry but you know the way that you maybe even as you mentioned you're like how your call changed i don't know if if you wanted to wait to talk about the life-changing aspects but i'm seeing that come up in in just even witnessing in your story how you evolved in the care that you provided yeah it's it's tough there's a there's a interesting conversation that happens in, in youth ministry and maybe specifically at, at Princeton or Rebel or, or whatever. Um, you know, this question of like, can't, can you be friends with the mm. people you're ministering to in general? Um, PTS would say no. <laughs> uh, officially PTS would say <laughs> no. Um, and I understand the reasons for that. Um, and boundaries and stuff. You know, my my best lesson in pastoral boundaries came from uh, side by side camp, side by side. This mm. this camp that both you and I did uh, for families that have a kid that's seriously ill with cancer, usually cancer. Um, and you would hop in for an extended weekend or a week, mm-hmm. uh, and then you'd hop out, 
Um, and if there was a deeper connection, then you could continue to like look into that and, and do that within the uh, security of the institution. You know, so if I wanted to, you know, continue to hang out with the family that uh, we got really close, then I'd continue to send letters to them through the church or meet with them with, so just like appropriate boundaries and stuff. Um, Mm. And this was interesting in that regard because of the real emotional toll that it took to interact with, with people with such heavy stories. Mm. Um, I really needed to work on uh, not carrying other people's stories. Um, Self-differentiation there. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, you know, and, and to be able to know that I'm allowed to be happy at the end of a day while I've still heard someone's, you know, awful story. Mm. Um, or so, so that level of self-knowledge, yeah. knowing who I am. Uh, I think that Dr. J. Paul Hines would maybe not be super pleased with me for this next thing that I'm about to say. Um, but this is that other thing of, of boundaries of like, to what extent? So, so there was a youth minister at UPC who some of the kids even picked up on this, but some of the leaders identified him as a youth vampire. And like that sounds maybe worse than it is. Uh, <laughs> sounds this, pretty bad. Yeah. No. This this sense of like you know cool cool dude, but he was doing youth ministry to keep himself young. Ah. Right. And and had this idea that in order to do good youth ministry, you had to be young. And this was maybe a 55-year-old man. So th- this idea is a little bit of a problem. Um, you know, even I'm, I'm what, 27? I'm going to continue to get old, but you don't need to be, you, you know, this is my definition of queerness, like be exactly who you are. That is itself going to be a, uh, a gift. Intergenerational, you know, mm. uh, intergenerational blessings are, are incredible. And there will always be young people coming up to do the young people thing. Um, luckily, I'm young enough uh, currently. Uh, anyway, I don't want to be ageist here. But um, all this to say, I do think that ministers are allowed to derive a lot of purpose mm. from them doing their ministry well. And this is one of the things like that made it really, like I found, similar to Camp Side by Side, I'm really good at this. Mm, like mm-hmm. part of what was life-changing is like, oh my God, gosh. Oh my gosh. I finally found something that like just vibes so well with who I am, how I do it, what I do. it, mm. And it's a benefit to other people. So it's not me just being some sort of, you know, leech or vampire sure. finding something that I like to do that conveniently aligns with what helps other people. But it's like the Beekner quote, Frederick Beekner exactly. says, your calling is where your passions meet the needs of the world. Yeah. So finding that place within yourself where it is life, it is yeah. fire that is alive, that is driving you to the fullness of your potential, of your of your passions. Yeah. And yeah. then it also conveniently is mm-hmm. intersecting with, yeah, needs that the world has. Yeah. And not taking on stuff outside of that. Again, my mentor, Kathy, would say, um, hand everything over to God and see what God hands back to you. Mm. Right. And your calling is not to do you know, just because there's a need does not mean that that is your calling to do. Mm. And that level of self-discipline has been very hard for me to learn. And I, I think I've learned it quite well at this point in my life. 
Um, and just being able to find that was very rewarding in this context. Mm. So what, it, what was it that I did really well? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, so you already very generously pointed out my level of suspension, my patience and my suspension of judgment. Mm-hmm. And I would also hope to add my just abiding level of compassion and belovedness that lies at the heart of all that. I uh, I started doing youth ministry because I had this vague sense that, oh, everyone is beloved, but kids don't give a shit about if you're if they're beloved in a general sense. They want to be beloved for exactly who and what they are. Yeah. Um, and anything else from that feels like judgment, actually. A should on them. That's fascinating. Yeah, a should and also the sense of uh, irrelevance. Yeah. Like, yep. you know, when you are in your life, you're not in God's global perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think first and foremost, you need to be come grounded in that sense of your belovedness before you can really explore what it looks like beyond your immediate self. Yeah. So there are a couple interactions that I want to highlight. Like in general, the interactions would be I, I would go in, see if a kid was uh, wanted to meet. Occasionally I would ask if one of the supervisors, and the supervisors were on the whole amazing people. Mm. A lot of them were Christians. Um, a couple of them had gone to seminary and stuff. Um, a lot of them had like military or police backgrounds. Um, some of that overlapped between the two groups. Um, some of them were just there to do a job and all of them were tired and understaffed and overworked. And that was, that is maybe one of the biggest practical problems across any sort of, you know, hospitals as well. Um, but prison ministry specifically, like Mm -hmm. people don't want to do this work and usually, well, I don't, yeah. Okay. People don't really want to do this work. Um, it's really exhausting. And it wears you down. Mm -hmm. It's called the care industry. Mm. Whether or not, you know, you want to problematize what roles are really caring and, you know, again, what's propping up the system and whatnot. But they're they're all, you know, bracketed under this notion of the, uh, uh, what did I just say? Care. Yeah. So they're all bracketed under the care industry, which is a, for one, highly gendered, Mm. two, highly underpaid, three, for the reason of being under overworked and underpaid, it's, you know, it's exhausting. It's unsustainable. There isn't support network built in for the people who are providing care. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of real badass women who worked there. Um, so that was, I found it a little surprising. Um, maybe I shouldn't find it surprising. Maybe that's part of the problem. Mm. Um, but yeah, so so that was one aspect. Oftentimes they were the ones who were most in tune. These staff people were most in tune and the, Guards, honestly, like I had one kid say, you know, the guards, the guards I trust. Um, these are people who they know their job. And I actually really liked most of the guards as well. Mm. Um, yeah, pretty kind, patient, wise people. And they were, and on the whole, mostly pretty well-trained to, yeah, there's a really tough, I don't know if this comes comes down to like, just war theory or something, but like matching strength with strength so as to not have 
a worse problem. You know, like if a kid starts punching, you know, you need to match that strength, um, not exceed it necessarily. But yeah, no, this this became a really tough issue once when this really, really failed because there was someone new uh, responding to, to be fair, a very tough kid. Um, not tough in terms of like strong necessarily, but like uh, troubled kid. Um, and the response was too harsh. But anyway, on the, on the whole, like even the, the kids were relatively understanding of and felt even respected by the staff people. Yeah. I have some pushback on the need to use force, but I don't want to sure. deter away. Yeah, no, I mean, the morality of whether yeah. or not it's good or bad or whatever, it's just that was the system at this location, sure. and it had its own it had its own difficulties. Um, so a couple interactions. I mean, a lot of the times the kids would just process, they'd vent to me. Yeah. Um, there was this one experience where both kids from both sides vented to me one after another. Hmm. and The two being in conflict with one another. Yes, you're kind of like this inner I just listened to liaison. both of them. <laughs> and, and it was fun to like to know that at the end of it, I had made both of them felt heard. Mm. Um, I don't have time to get into uh, verbatims and like the process of listening to these kids and reflecting on my own body of, you know, what happened, you know. But again, Terry was very good at, at training me in that. That's another thing. I really have learned a strong sense of connection to my body in terms of my own reactions and position awesome. things. So that was very good. Yeah. Anyway, there were these three uh, particular interactions. Very first week, um, <laughs> my first time being alone with a kid one-on-one, mm. um, you know, there, there's something that happens. You know, you gener- I generally want to respect the kid's privacy, and so we meet in some sort of back room or whatever, which often always has to be locked. And there's something that happens when that, um, when that door locks behind me mm. and I'm like, oh, I am now, even just for this moment, in the same situation as this kid. Mm. Like, I do not have the autonomy to leave. I would need to ask someone, the guard, who I probably don't know very well, to, like, unlock this door. Mm-hmm. And there was something very interesting when that happened. Um, just internally. Sure. Yeah. Reflecting on that. But anyway, okay, so this first time, meeting with this kid, he, a lot of these kids have boundary uh I'll say, I'll use the word issues. Uh, either like way high boundaries and they don't let anyone in for again reasons that make a lot of sense given some amount of trauma. Oh, I forgot. Here's this big thing that like ties all of these kids together. Um, it was a it was a pretty uh, again minorities are almost always overrepresented in uh, incarceration settings, um, particularly racial minorities. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was surprised by the uh, real overrepresentation of queer kids there too. Actually, has a lot to do with the overrepresentation of queer kids in homelessness. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, but a couple of the things that tied all these kids together. Okay, so I was used to working with, because of my background in queerness, I'm used to working with kids that have a lot of experience of identity formation questions or issues, and family rejection. And because of my work internationally, I have a lot of experience with kids that have gone through certain levels of, like, violence and resource scarcity. Mm. Uh, And this was all of that combined. Um, Like, poverty is a freaking war. Yeah. So so the the common threads between these kids. um, Drug use was pretty ubiquitous. 
um, gang affiliation was pretty ubiquitous, and I, I learned some things about about gangs and gang affiliation um, that were really humbling. Um, and then also uh, experiences of some sort of uh, family disruption in terms of either abuse or an incarcerated parent or absent parent or something like that. Aces, basically. Yeah, yeah, all of these aces, adverse childhood effects. Experiences, um, yeah. There we go. Okay, so kid, so this first kid, uh, I said boundaries. Some kids have high boundaries. Some kids have no boundaries, mm. and it's a problem. I don't know if it's a problem, but, like, this kid immediately, 10 seconds into our conversation, he was telling me all of the terrible things that had happened to him and all of the terrible things that he had done, his mm. own kind of views on them. Um, and they were pretty extreme, you know, content warning, violence. This kid was telling me, that he had seen his father stab his uncle oh. right in front of him. Content warning, suicide. Or saw a different, it was a cousin or an uncle, like, hang himself right in front of him. Yeah. Uh, just all of these emotional things of, like, feeling disrespected and feeling harmed and his own displacement. You know, he was once punched by a cop, and so he went and punched the mailman. Mm. And he knew, he, he like knew in himself that what he was doing was, was transference and reactions to trauma. And he had just really articulate language of, you know, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Like he knew, he, he wasn't using the exact terminology, but he was saying like, and, and I don't understand how I could just stand there and do nothing, mm. you know, or, or why I'm so angry all the time or whatever. And this kid was going through really articulately the things that had kind of happened to him um, and the things that he had done as well. You know, he was talking about his uh, experience with drinking when he was 13. Um, he was like, yeah, but I didn't drink like the adults mm. because I didn't get angry mm. and I didn't hit anyone. I would just come home and go to bed. Um, and he would talk about like his grandma praying for him. and uh, Grandmas, grandmas are wild. <laughs> grandmas are amazing. Just in general? In general. Like if any of these kids had a faith background, 90% of the time, it was whatever faith their grandmother was. Wow. We should do an episode on grandmas. We maybe should. Um, so that was something that was really interesting. But anyway, this kid had, had said all these things and then stopped, looked at me in the eyes and said, do you think God will forgive me? Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh. Internally, I was like, oh my gosh. It's really intense. Um, and I was like, oh boy, well... Uh, like what did I say? I knew that I, I handled that handled it externally, calmly, and and I'm not going to say neutrally, mm -hmm. but compassionately. And I was like, wow, that's a really really important question. You know, all of the acknowledging his bravery and vulnerability, vulnerability, and all that. Yeah. Um, and said, there's there's a couple ways to answer this. First of all. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Off like that. basically the entire point of uh, the, the whole narrative of yeah. what, yeah, the gospel is, is that, you know, that God is here for like, God, God, you know, God, God expects us. This is basically what I said to him. There are all sorts of parables where God expects us to forgive, mm. you know, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the parable of the guy who has forgiven much and then is angry at this dude who owes him like five bucks yeah. um, or, you know, forgive 70 times seven. Like these are just human expectations. Sure. 
so how much more, therefore, is God going to forgive us? And the yeah. whole process. It's like that, yeah. that saying, you who are evil. Now we can, you know, talk about the yeah. language. But like, <laughs> if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how yeah. much more so will your heavenly parent mm-hmm. give good gifts? Exactly. One of which being forgiveness and grace. Exactly. Exactly. So, so then I, I talked about like, yeah, so, so yes, God is all about forgiveness. Now that process of forgiveness is a holistic thing, right? It has to do with repentance. It has mm. to do with, and, and he and I had already talked long enough and he knew, he knew his Bible by this point. So I was using biblical terminology mm-hmm. that he was familiar with, not like the ideas behind it to sure. like beat him up. Um, metanoia was what I was talking about. It's like now forgiveness is a, is a relationship. It is a process of like turning. And, mm-hmm. and I, I then said, so now here comes the complicated part. The complicated part is that forgiveness is not a a transaction or a, a bargaining that you get to do between God. Forgiveness is healing. And so, like, with this kid, I did, and I was pretty proud of it. Maybe it was a little too intense. This was maybe, like, zealous first week, Byron. Um, but reframing the entire story of Christ's incarnation as God is the thing that heals in relationship and the only way to heal, if God is the source of it, is to come close to that healing. Mm. And so, yes, we are to, like, come to God in that. But God wanted to be so close to us as humans that God came down in the person of Jesus to get close to what it was to be human. But that wasn't enough. God came even closer to our brokenness, to our pain, right? Sin is is not this, like, mistake that you do. Sin is this brokenness of the detachment that we have. Mm with each other, with ourselves, with God. And God holds that. And to hold something that is broken means that it has sharp edges and it will cut you. And that's the consequences. You know, I was talking to him. It's like, these are the, these are the consequences of, you've already seen the, the brokenness and the hurt in your life from the consequences of these detachments. And what Jesus does, what God decides to do is to hold that so close to himself that it kills him on the cross. And then says, and then to prove that that's not an issue, comes back to life and says, see, I got you. I'm here with you. There is nothing, neither, you know, any sort of sin from the outside or the inside or whatever that can keep me from loving you. Mm-hmm. And that was my first day <laughs> alone. How do you feel like he responded to that? He, like, he specifically asked this whole question about, like, wait, how does the blood of the lamb thing happen in Hebrews? Um, and... I was like, oh, you want to talk about substitutionary atonement? Okay, let's go there. And so that's, you know, he had kind of asked the specific question, which is why I went as theologically deep mm-hmm. as as I did. Um, and he was like, oh, okay. I, he seemed to, like, I don't know. I don't know what happened on the inside of his own mind and heart and whatever. Yeah. I think what you said is beautiful, and I imagine it has the potential to land well. And I guess my point of curiosity is, you know, this is just something, this is just something I'm wrestling with myself currently is, you know, how much can theology change hearts as opposed right. to minds? Right, right, right. Yeah, this was this was a problem. One of the books I was reading this summer was uh, Henry Nouwen, mm-hmm. uh, Life of the Beloved. And I'd never read it. I'd heard of it only in positive terms. I actually read it. It's not great. Like, sorry, Hanky Now Nows. But it's, it's written to a secular audience. Mm-hmm. And so he simultaneously dumbs stuff down 
in terms of the rigor of the theology, but he also doesn't relate it personally enough to mm. something that makes sense to a secular audience. So it kind of is the worst of both worlds um, to some extent. Like, I don't know. Sorry to those who like this book. It's fine. It, it, it's got its beautiful, like, one-liners all over the place. Um, but this this was my fear. It's like, am I speaking too theologically, um, mm. too theoretically, to be speaking good news to this kid? And again, this this was like super zealous Christian-y Byron week one. Yeah. Um, and by the grace of God, for this kid, I think it might have it might have landed a little better than it would have with some other kids throughout the rest of the time. Um, so I don't think it, I don't think it was bad. Again, I, I don't know what it did. I tended to not do that same level of whatever for the rest of the summer. So yeah, good question. <laughs> so you said that was your first interaction. What about your second two big transformative? Yeah. The other two were, well, I'll take just half a second for this this other one there was this one kid who we met only twice and we talked extensively about like quantum physics and cool. like genetic engineering and this kid was was sharp this kid was smart he was relatively like non-spiritually focused um intentionally like he he was like yeah i think i'm an atheist i was like cool so great let's we can still talk i'm still here i have a whole degree in in oceanography and science we like and just care about you as a holistic person. So we just talked for a long time, and that was really cool for that kid. Um, like, and I could tell that it was cool for him because he kept engaging. Mm. Um, there was another kid who, like, I was one of the first people he ever came out as queer to, and he was leaving. And so I did a whole bunch of research back in eastern Washington to see if there was an affirming church that he could go to. Mm. Um and then I don't know if that worked or landed because I'm not allowed to talk to these kids after they leave. And sure. So, so yeah, the other two kids. Um, I'll see if I can get to this. That uh, there was an indigenous kid in the high security cabin cottage, and this kid. I don't know how many aces there are in the official like textbook. Is ten, 10 or fourteen? Ten. Or, yeah. It might have been updated to fourteen. Oh. Um, I think. But this cat, this kid had like fourteen out of fourteen. Like there is. This kid has had the most traumatizing experiences of anyone I've ever met in my entire life. Um, like, I, I asked I asked him his life story at one point, um, and he just kind of kept going and kept going and kept going, and I was just floored. Um, like, his mom came to the hospital high on drugs, delivered him, and left him. I don't remember if she uh, died then or shortly thereafter. His dad came and got him like months later. Um, and he got into the foster system really quickly um, and was just passed around. L luckily, and he, he would say luckily, uh, almost always on uh, indigenous reservation mm. land, um, not always with an indigenous family, but uh, so he he grew up with a pretty strong connection to various First Nations in uh, Washington. Mm. This kid is actually just a straight up like again like the system of racism doesn't uh, work 
in a reverse direction across powered uh, dynamics. Like you can't call that systematic racism or anything. But this, this kid was like a full-on indigenous supremacist in a way that was like actively prejudiced against and discriminatory against everyone else. Um, like he would say the worst racist stereotypical things about anyone and everyone who wasn't indigenous. And it was really tough to be around. Mm. Um, he was, he was again, that thing of like kids pushing you and testing you. This kid was doing this to like level 12. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, you know, if I had reacted negatively, you know, he, he would say things about like the indigenous experience and, when he would talk about white people, he would say, you did this to me. Mm. And he would say, you know, you gave, you know, he would say me or like our people or whatever. Just huge broad brushes of like, you know, you or you white people mm -hmm. slaughtered and, and did all these things. And he, everything he said was like hi historically, like he was very well informed sure. as to the, the history of trauma. Um, it was really tough to be around in terms of my own positionality as a as a white dude and as a white Christian and and all of that. Um, oy, yeah, yeah, because you want to be there to be an open ear, an open heart, to you know honor and and reflect that humanity. But uh, what could he even hear from you? Yeah, is maybe it was a good question. Really, really tough. I knew that I'd broken through after just sitting and me just like shutting up and, and listening and like mm -hmm. to some extent reflecting and, and to some extent, you know, whatever when he had sat there and he like very excitedly got up and was like, Hey, can I show you my journal? Mm. And he, he like, this was after we'd done a Bible study actually. Um, and I tried to like, I, I eventually got him one of the first nation translations. Mm. Um, that was very, uh, moving for him. Uh, got him a couple other books about like indigenous cause he was a, Christian quote-unquote he, he actually he taught me a lot about um an indigenous relationship to or his tri his group's uh indigenous relationship to Christianity mm. uh so Washimaneto is their word for creator for God and then there is a like a granddaughter of Washimaneto who kind of takes on a very Jesus-like role in in the story and then there's I uh, forget the other Manetto, uh, who's like the devil. But this devil is the white man mm -hmm. and, and all of the like complexity. And and he was like, hey, he's like, I know you white people think that like we we like immigrated here 10,000 years ago or 16,000 years ago from, you know, other places. But no, we like we were made from this land by God, mm -hmm. by Washimaneto. Like and so his his relationship to stuff was just like. I needed to suspend so much um, in terms of like science, in terms of morality, in terms of like this was the kid who taught me about gangs. Mm. He was telling me his life story. Like he was, he was kind of drawn into gang situations by the time he was 11 years old. Um, might've been even earlier than that, maybe nine, but uh, like, yeah, fourth grade ish. Mm -hmm. And he drew the dot to be fair. He drew the dot of like, gang association and then the next sentence he said was like incarceration or violence or whatever and I was like whoa okay so what is you know do you regret the affiliation with gangs and he's like what do you think gangs are and I said oh 
whoa, I, I guess I don't know. That's why I'm asking. And so he then, he then very graciously like explained the history of, of gangs as like social circles that arose in tight knit communities as forms of like resource distribution and, and, and social care and, and things like that against usually the police state. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet how, you know, I, what Crips and bloods stands for something like brotherly love is our, uh, something against oppression. Like bloods stands for brotherly love is our synonym, like, like a remedy against oppression. Mm. That's what bloods means. It doesn't mean like the blood of our enemies or, you know, and Crips is, um, uh, civil revolution in against police or I don't know it, uh, it it's these like really meaningful and and important things that that he acknowledges have been really co-opted and weaponized by police and against uh, against each other so now that now it has become situations of like mutual violence mm-hmm. um, and territory and stuff but anyway so it was this was that second kid. He was just really, really tough. He uh, he challenged me to a rap battle. This um, is the one. Yeah, this yeah. is the one who challenged me to a rap battle. Um, and uh, he he told me to write a rap, and so I did. And he was very impressed with that rap. And then he said rap battle, and I was like, oh, gosh. No, freestyle. And you're like, no, I can't. And he's like, do it. And you're like, no, I can't. And he's like, do it. And you're like, okay. And you're like, that was terrible. And you're like, I told you. <laughs> that is exactly what it was. <laughs> um, and he was also cheating because he wasn't making them up off the top of his head. Yeah. He had lots of practice. And if and when he was doing that, he was so much better than I am. But anyway, really, really amazing kid. Um Last kid was um, a <laughs> uh, took me a long time to get around to actually meeting with him because I was very intimidated. Mm. Um, he was a Satanist, um, and also was addicted. Had been or was addicted to meth, um, and was just a very very kind of angry reactionary person. Um, somewhat similar like again was he really a satanist Uh, not to disregard that at all at all but he a large amount of what he would do in representing himself was to like scare people and keep people away keep people at bay and so again one of the things that i was able to do was just like (laughs) one of the first things he said when i met him he was like you jesus people are all alike you're nice to people for no reason (laughs) <laughs> I was like, like, thank you gosh I wish that was true <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then the next time I saw you know every time he saw me he would say hail Satan I'm like I don't know how to react to that like am I supposed to say hail Satan am I supposed to say hail Jesus like I don't want to antagonize you and so this was this was just really really interesting at some point I asked like the second time I met him I was like do you even know who Satan is I was a little confrontational because um, he had not expressed it a, a particularly uh, I hadn't listened. I hadn't listened well enough to hear any depth of what he actually believed. So I asked, and I didn't ask with the best attitude of like, "Do you actually know what Satan is?" And he was like, "Yeah, Beelzebub. You know, Lucifer, the the one who fell from heaven." And, you know, it's like, "Whoa, okay, you actually do." He articulated these couple things, and I was like, "Okay." So then I filled in a couple. I responded with a couple other things, and he's like, "Whoa, you really know your stuff too." And so that's what like that was that moment that I think really 
kind of connected. And just growing up as a Christian, it was like, oh, yeah, we know. Like, I I know a lot about Satan and stuff in ways that can fill in, not necessarily the Levian Satanist church. Sure. Because they have different beliefs, which I'll get into next time. Um, but this kid and I got really, really close. Um, and uh, I was one of the first people he'd ever come out to. Um, and a week later, he had come out to the staff people. And a week after that, he had come out to... He was never really hiding it. This is one of my favorite things about him. He never lied. Um, mm. He was just ridiculously honest. And just no one believed him because he was so like ridiculous about all of it. Just such a fascinating person. Mm. Um, yeah. I I think we got really attached to each other in ways that like... Um, that was maybe a way that it was probably appropriate when the timing of the summer ended. Um, Cause like we had a week left of the time and he was like, wait, you're leaving. And I'm like, yes, I, I have to leave. And I was like, okay, but, but I'll, I'll still be in, you know, let me know how, how often you want to meet. And he's like every day. I was like, ah, okay. That's maybe a lot. <laughs> um, and not just, you know, maybe the, the attachment was a little too much in, not for like for for healthy boundaries for him mm-hmm. um so that was a that was an interesting experience for me of like trying to mediate and navigate how to say no to someone who you know i it's really great to be liked and it's really great to be told that you're being helpful and and, and sure. doing a good job yeah. and stuff you know there were some kids who said like you should come work here you're better than you know our therapists who come in um and whether that was true or not you know my response was i can't I'm not going to. And if I did, you wouldn't like it because then I'd have power over you. Mm-hmm. And that changes everything. So so these were some That's of wise. the interactions. Yeah. Um, they were very, very moving and very... I learned so, so, so much. So that's that's kind of my summer. <laughs> I, I love that. One of the things that stands out to me right there at the end, you just said this little nugget of wisdom about the differential of power and how oh that would gosh. change the relationship that you have. And I think that there's something really important there, this idea, again, going back to what is ministry, yeah. you know. Uh, but even as you're sharing about um, the indigenous kid who had had all of that trauma and the way that he was interacting and, you know, you, you said something about, like, breakthrough you know and i was thinking like that that almost feels like it has an orientation towards desiring progress which to a certain extent is like well you're not just re- twiddling your thumbs there that like you know that was one of the biggest tensions of the entire summer is like you know what what am i actually doing here right right that that you want your presence to be valuable but you also don't want the framework towards value to be seeing them then as subjects or seeing them as like um projects right or me as a savior this became a huge a problem yeah, yeah. because satanist kid literally called me jesus this happened three or four times i didn't even get into the whole crucifix thing um over maybe not a compliment coming from the satanist kid. no no it, it, it was actually <laughs> i'm just teasing you. um yeah i mean he called me jesus man for a little while and then like it just caught on and he and other people this happened three separate times across mm-hmm. the thing for the summer because I kind of look it's like... It's the hair, it's the beard, it's the... Yeah, I didn't walk around barefoot in prison. But um, but yeah, so this... And Kathy pointed this out. It's like, Byron, the point of this is not to get this kid to fall in love with you. Yeah. 
the point of this is to get this kid to fall in love with Jesus. And the, the point, you know, heavy, heavy air quotes on what the point is. Sure. You know, I don't want to be manipulative. Sure. Even in a Christocentric or Christ-oriented way, I don't think that's even what Jesus did for yeah. himself. But, but yeah, that power dynamic and that orientation and that positionality became really tricky. And not just with him, but, you know, did I like being helpful or did I like being... Yeah. I think when you orient yourself towards love from a place of humility of like, I don't have anything to offer. I just want to love you. Yeah. You know, uh, you do offer much more than if you were trying to mm-hmm. offer something. Right. These kids just had almost never had someone who had loved them as unconditionally and as, I, I don't know, as, as I was. And it was really, really beautiful to see the result. Yeah, I, I just want to qualify that because I hear what you're saying and I think there's something about the love that you offered, particularly as a stranger, that is stunning. Mm-hmm. Of like, why does a stranger come in and care about me? You know, like I do think there's power there. I, I also want to say, just to, you know, complexify that narrative of the unconditional love and whatnot, that it's like, I, and maybe this in itself is a problematic statement to make or overly simplistic or whatnot, and I'm willing to be challenged on that, but this sense of, you know, people's parents who are coming from all sorts of trauma themselves, you know, who um, don't have the resources or, um, you know, if, you know, in a relationship with drugs or alcohol that they don't have the capacity in one form or another to care. But it it doesn't mean that that love's not still present, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't manifest in the way that, you know, you coming from a life of, you know, relative privilege, you know, and, and, and comfort, you know, to be able to then offer, um, a a very different manifestation of love. Well, and also what I, I was there interacting with them for a couple hours a week over one summer. Like I'm not, (laughs) I, that lack of power actually is, is the, the lack of investment, the lack of connection ongoing and and whatever is actually, you know, another limitation. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, the main point that I wanted to make with that, though, is that uh, just because the way that people interact with us or treat us, particularly thinking about family or community, um, we might not experience it as love or it might not be helpful for our growth or, or whatnot, but to, to recognize the inherent drive towards love that mm-hmm. itself might be... Uh, might face all sorts of obstacles within that person's Absolutely. life, particularly in terms of trauma and other forms of, you know, systemic oppression that befall them. But yeah. that that love is still present, and yeah. in many ways, you know, it's it's a gritty kind of resilient love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think it's to some extent, it's there's something about having this. <laughs> this is this is a you know youth youth leader uh, conundrum. You know, Mm -hmm. why is it that a youth leader can say, can come in and, you know, in a couple weekends say the same thing that a parent, a loving and exhausted parent has said for their whole life and the kid suddenly gets it, Mm. you know? And it's, there, there's something that the parent has been doing such a job um, of loving and, there's just multiple contexts and things. One of my favorite things to do with with kids is to take that, 
experience and reflect back on where they have received love before. Mm. You know, whether it's a parent who's just afraid to let them ever, you know, go swimming alone or something. It's Mm -hmm. like, how much of this is coming from their, you know, yes, insecurity, but like primarily rooted in love or like, you know, won't let someone come out as queer or like express their gender in, in the clothing that they wear of like, yeah, there's no competition or, or conflict between like there. Yeah. We're not comparing these types of loves. Um, and hopefully both lead towards each other and point towards, you know, an actual, uh, I don't know, healthy continuing source, uh, an actually omnipresent Mm. source of love, which is Jesus. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that, Byron. I really appreciate you Thanks for sharing with us your summer. Mm-hmm. Well, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace. <laughs>